Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Rosalek. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, it's hard to believe six years have passed since the president signed the Affordable Care Act into law. It's been a tumultuous ride with many fits and starts along the way, but it truly has proven to be a watershed moment for much-needed reform of the American healthcare system. Well, Mark, the health law has done much to disrupt the status quo in healthcare, uh, how it's paid for, how it's delivered, and most importantly, who gets that care because they have insurance. When the president signed the law in 2010, an estimated 50 million Americans were uninsured. Now, 20 million Americans have gained coverage. That's a signature achievement. Of course, the health reform journey continues, but we note the progress. And if you look at populations that were most likely to be uninsured, you see some dramatic results. The uninsured rate for African Americans has dropped 53% since 2013, and the rate dropped just under 30% for Hispanic population. Many of those close to the poverty line gain coverage under the Medicaid expansion portion of the law as well. Well, it's hard to overemphasize how significant the Medicaid expansion is. And unfortunately, of course, uh, many states did not expand. The Supreme Court did not uphold the Medicaid expansion law, with the result that 20 states have yet to approve Medicaid expansion. And that leaves many of their most vulnerable residents still uninsured and without access to care or the resources to pay for it. You know, that uh, reminds me of a comment that was made by Harvard School of Public Health, John McDonough. Because of this, people will die. And our guest today is one of uh, Dr. McDonough. Harvard colleagues and is also one of the nation's leading experts. Catherine Baker is the recent chair of the Department of Health Policy Management at the Harvard School of Public Health. She's a renowned health economist who's been analyzing data for years on the impact of gaining health insurance coverage on health outcomes, as well as in reducing personal financial burdens. And we're really looking forward to hearing from her. Also, we'll be hearing from Lori Robertson, the managing editor of factcheck.org, is always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And remember, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love to hear from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Catherine Baker in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. On the sixth anniversary of the signing of the Affordable Care Act, one of the more contentious aspects of the law found itself under review at the Supreme Court again, the mandate requiring all employers providing health coverage to offer birth control services as part of that mandate. The Supreme Court, still one justice shy since the death of Antonin Scalia, seems evenly split on the question. At issue, the controversial requirement that most health insurance plans provide women with access to contraceptives at no additional out-of-pocket costs. The Obama administration has provided alternative options for religiously affiliated employers, such as universities or hospitals, but challengers say it still violates a federal law protecting the free exercise of religion. Supreme Court observers say, judging from testimony and comments from the bench, the court seems evenly split. 
An estimated 86 million Americans, about one in three adults, are believed to be pre-diabetic, setting the stage for a tsunami of diabetes cases down the line. Health and Human Services Secretary Sylvia Matthews-Burwell announced plans to expand a pilot program launched at the YMCA that puts at-risk patients into diabetes prevention programs. The program uses group meetings, exercise and diet counseling and other methods to help pre-diabetics gain control of their condition. And according to early results, the program appears to be working. Compared to other beneficiaries also at risk for developing diabetes, Medicare estimated the savings of about $2,600 for each program enrollee over the 15-month period. It's the first prevention pilot program to become eligible for expanded funding under Medicare. The FDA is stepping up action in the wake of a rising tide of opioid addiction and overdose deaths in this country, which FDA Commissioner Robert Califf has called the most pressing health issue facing our country at the moment. FDA issuing new rules for so-called black box warnings to be placed on all opioid labels about risks, including risks for abuse, addiction, as well as overdose and death. Overdose, now the leading cause of accidental death in this country, with 47,000 opioid deaths reported in 2014 alone. And feeling generous? Generous enough to donate a kidney, perhaps? A recent study showed a majority of those asked would be willing to donate a kidney if there were financial incentives added. According to the most recent numbers, 7,600 people died in 2013 while on a waiting list for a donated kidney. Currently, paying for organs is illegal in this country, and out-of-pocket expenses for altruistic donors can range anywhere from five to $20,000, as the ancillary expenses aren't covered by insurance. And chocolate, the wonder drug. It's been getting a lot of great press lately as a heart-healthy, brain-healthy superfood. According to another recent study, it may also be a potent performance enhancer. The study just published in the Journal of the International Society of Sports Medicine found that just a few days of ingesting dark chocolate increased the production of nitric oxide in cycling athletes. That increases oxygen absorption. Every athlete in the study performed better after ingesting dark chocolate versus a control group eating the white stuff. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Catherine Baker, Ph.D., and the C. Boyden Gray Professor of Health Economics and recent chair of the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Professor Baker serves as a commissioner on the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, as chair of the Massachusetts Group Insurance Commission, and on the Congressional Budget Office Panel of Health Advisors. She also served on the President's Council of Economic Advisors from 2005 to 2007. Dr. Baker's work has been widely published, and she serves on the editorial boards of Health Affairs and the Journal of Health Economics. She's an elected member of the Institute of Medicine. She earned her B.S. from Yale and her PhD in economics from Harvard. Professor Baker, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you for having me. Well, Catherine, you've earned the reputation of being one of the nation's leading health economists, especially on the impact of uh, expanded health coverage. And you focused much of your research on factors that drive the effectiveness of public and private health insurance and the the effects of health reform on the distribution of uh, quality of care. And We're six years out from the passage of the Affordable Care Act and the impact of which you've really spent a lot of time focusing in on. So maybe you could share with our listeners how the ACA has lived up 
uh, or fallen short of the uh, expectations, both in terms of coverage as well as the uh, economic impact on consumers, as well as the government budgets? Sure. I think there were really two main goals of health insurance and health care reform. One was to expand coverage to people who didn't have insurance mm-hmm. or didn't have adequate access to care. And the second was to improve the value that we get from the health care system and slow spending growth for both public programs and for health insurance premiums for people buying it in private markets. I think we've succeeded better on the first goal than we have to date on the second. And that's because the second goal is harder. Mm-hmm. As a profession, we have a pretty good idea about how to expand insurance to different populations, but it's a problem that we understand pretty well. Getting higher value out of the healthcare system, stopping spending a lot of money on things that don't improve health while maintaining access to life-saving care, that is a much harder question, and I don't think we have the answer yet. Well, Catherine, as an economist, of of course, your focus is on analyzing uh, cost-benefit analyses of policy decisions that we make, and and there are so many items right now that drive the cost side of the equation. I've been thinking about the um, certainly the ongoing Medicaid expansion debate, but also the public health crises that arrive on our horizons, needing uh, money for research on the Zika virus, or of course, what we're reading about every day in the papers, battling the opioid crisis. Part of the cost-benefit analysis is needing to consider kind of the intrinsic value of such policies. We would really like to hear your thoughts as a member of the Congressional Budget Office Panel of Health Advisors, this idea of intrinsic value and how that comes into play when people are around the table informing policy decisions. Um, You're raising a really important issue. People like to say, well, you can't put a price on health. As an economist, I can put a price on anything. (laughs) And and I I think that it's important to put a price on health because we have so many competing public policy priorities. We have a limited set of public resources to go around. There's only 100% of GDP to go around to health and food and housing and education and transportation. So if you're not willing to think carefully about, is this money creating the most good in the world by devoting it to health care versus devoting it to something else, I think you're going to end up with a really distorted use of resources. And we see that when we think about spending on health care that produces very small health benefits at enormous cost to public and private dollars. I think we haven't wrestled carefully enough with how we want to make those decisions as a society in our public programs, as individuals in our private expenditures. Those are very tough decisions to make, but if you're not willing to engage on what's the value that I'm getting out of this healthcare spending, there's no way to devote those resources to where they're doing the most good. It's much easier when you identify care that is not improving people's health at all, and there is an alarming quantity of that. Mm -hmm. Certainly, there's some care that's harmful to patients, and there's a real harm in terms of increased exposure to radiation or risk of surgical infection or health consequences that outweigh any potential benefits. But conceptually, I think we all agree. The much more difficult ones are treatments that might extend patients' lives by a matter of weeks Mm -hmm. at a cost of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And the human being in all of us, I think, has the same reaction. Well, of course, you want to do whatever you can to extend and improve people's lives. 
but that may not be the right answer when there are all sorts of other things you could use those resources for that would improve people's lives by more. And that's the trade-off. Catherine, you gained quite a bit of attention uh, for a research study you conducted. It was uh, the so-called Oregon Medicaid uh, experiment, which offered uninsured Oregonians a, a chance to win Medicaid coverage in a statewide lottery. And you had this sort of perfect scenario for a, a randomized clinical trial with a, a control and intervention group. Could you tell us uh, what you studied in the Oregon experiment and why it was so interesting and how you were able to mine it for such uh, rich data sets. This is, I think, one of the most important studies I've had the opportunity to work on. Oregon, as you mentioned, had a waiting list for its Medicaid program, and they decided that the most fair thing to do would be to draw names from the waiting mm-hmm. list by chance, and the most fair way to allocate the limited spots that was available was by lottery. So it was born of necessity and scarce resources, but it then created this unprecedented opportunity to really assess the effects of expanding Medicaid on healthcare use, on financial well-being, a whole range of outcomes in a way that could provide much better information than previously available. And that's because people who are on Medicaid and the uninsured look different in lots of ways. Being poor or having a disabling health condition are both independently bad for your health. And so if you don't take into account that the uninsured and people on Medicaid look different in these other confounding ways, you may get a very wrong assessment of the effect of Medicaid. People on Medicaid have a higher mortality rate. It might be tempting to naively conclude that Medicaid is killing them. They have a higher mortality rate. What a terrible program. But of course, that's not a valid conclusion from that fact pattern. People on Medicaid have higher mortality rates for lots of other reasons. So with the Oregon context, we had this unprecedented opportunity to have an actual randomized control group. You would never accept information about whether a drug worked or not without a randomized controlled trial, but we're frequently forced to do that for public policies because there is no randomized controlled trial. But here, born out of necessity in Mm -hmm. Oregon, there was one. And so we were able to launch a massive data collection effort to study the people who got Medicaid because of the lottery and the people who remained on the lottery list but didn't get access to the program. And I think we found a lot of interesting things people wouldn't have expected. Well, Catherine, I'm going to ask you to maybe stick with that because I I think the results were very fascinating. And participants who got coverage reported feeling healthier. There was a 30% uh, improvement in self-assessment of mental health or reduction of depression. Coverage led to a greater use of specialists and hospital services, which actually increased the cost of care without markedly improving their health. But again, that was a relatively short duration of the study. So maybe you could address some of these interesting findings. How, how do they inform your broader understanding of the impact of gaining coverage? I think we learned a lot about how health insurance affects health care use, health, and well-being from the study. As you noted, we saw a substantial increase in health care use. When people gained access to Medicaid, they went to the doctor more, mm-hmm. they got more preventive care, they used more prescription medications. I think all of those lined up with the expectations of policymakers and stakeholders. Part of the goal of expanding insurance was to expand access to those services. And we also saw an increase in hospitalizations. 
On the other hand, the population was probably substantially Mm -hmm. underserved. There were probably a lot of conditions that needed to be addressed Mm -hmm. in the hospital, and we saw a substantial increase in use for those kinds of services. The very surprising thing was that we also saw about a 40% increase in emergency department use. And that, I don't think, was expected by most people. Mm -hmm. They had really hoped that getting people access to primary care would keep them out of the emergency department. And that may be less surprising to economists. When insurance makes the emergency department free, people go more often. They were more likely to go in situations we might think of as somewhat more discretionary. Mm -hmm. And once people had insurance, they were much likely to opt to go to the emergency department in those circumstances. The second set of findings was to think about financial well-being, and that is underappreciated in my view. Insurance is supposed to get you access to care, but it's also supposed to keep you from getting evicted from your apartment Mm -hmm. because you paid your hospital bill instead of your rent. And we saw it succeeding very well for new Medicaid beneficiaries in those circumstances. There was a dramatic reduction in bills being sent to collection. The incidence of catastrophic out-of-pocket medical expenses vanished when people had Medicaid relative to being uninsured. And that's consistent with people using more services. But then the, the third set of outcomes that you pointed to is health outcomes. And there the story's much more nuanced. We saw this big reduction in clinical measures of depression. There was a 30% drop in us assessing people as having a clinical depressive episode when we interviewed them in person. And this is a dramatic improvement. The physical health outcomes were a little more mixed. People reported being in much better health. They were much more likely to say they were in excellent, very good, or good health. But we didn't detect improvements in things like cholesterol, diabetic blood sugar control, or high blood pressure. So our estimates were consistent with some modest improvements in those measures, but any changes in them were not big enough to be statistically detectable in our sample. We're speaking today with Catherine Baker, PhD, and C. Boyden, Professor of Health Economics and recent chair of the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You know, Catherine, as I was thinking as you were talking about the Oregon experience, that you have another set of opportunities now that the Affordable Care Act is rolled out, and many states have chosen not to opt into the Medicaid expansion program. Are you picking up similar types of uh, data set examples as you did in, uh, in the Oregon experience? It's harder to compare across states, and it's not a random subset of states that choose to expand. There's something different about mm-hmm. the states that are choosing to expand from those that aren't. So it's not a perfect apples-to-apples comparison. That said, I think that there's still a lot to learn by looking at states that expand versus those that don't before they expand versus afterwards. There's an opportunity to try to assess how trajectories change when states opt to expand. I'd love to see more information about what's really working well Mm -hmm. in insurance expansion and what works less well in terms of the type of insurance whether it's public or private, how heavily managed it is, how far beyond the siloed walls of the healthcare system it reaches. There's some really interesting experiments going on in some states, Oregon included, looking at reaching out into the community to try to provide more flexible Medicaid benefits. Or some states are experimenting with providing health insurance on the exchange instead of Medicaid benefits. 
one of the lessons that I think we learned from Oregon is that expanding a traditional Medicaid-managed care plan to a population with complicated mm-hmm. health care needs is probably not sufficient to mm-hmm. dramatically improve management of chronic conditions like diabetes mm-hmm. or high blood pressure. And I think that there's a lot left for us to learn about the provider side of things and the insurer side of things in terms of designing insurance products that really work for these populations. Well, Catherine, we all turn our eyes towards the state of Massachusetts, which has had near universal coverage for, I think, almost a decade now. In the years following the passage of health reform, usage and costs went up, but the death rate actually dropped, uh, indicating some things were working. I also remember the headlines about the difficulty with access to care, finding a primary care provider, uh, and also the issue, of course, of people still struggling with, with co-payments and deductibles. What can we learn from the long view uh, in Massachusetts? Still, out-of-pocket costs a big issue for a lot of people. Yeah, there are several important issues you raise there. One is that understanding the effect of a system-wide expansion of health insurance may be very different from a narrow expansion because there may be more of a strain on capacity. There may Mm -hmm. not be enough primary care providers to go around when you suddenly insure millions of people across the country. In the short term, that can be a real problem, but that if the payment system and incentives are right, the supply or the provider system can adjust to accommodate an influx of new people and for payments to the providers. And you raise the issue of co-pays. Nuanced cost sharing can be an important component of a sustainable health care system. I think realistically, if you want to have a health care system that's sustainable, it has to be designed in a way to maintain access to high-value care, but to not spend a lot of money on care of questionable value. Healthcare seems different. It's not as though we sit around saying, hey, did you hear they're giving away free MRIs next door? Let's go get five at lunch. That's not how people think about their healthcare. But at the same time, we do know that if there's some cost sharing, people will think twice about whether the care has enough value for them. And it's hard as a patient You can't expect me as a non-clinician to be able to make incredibly nuanced decisions about the best course of health care for me. So if you want to have cost sharing, that depends on the value of the service to the individual. Cholesterol controlling medications for diabetics, some kinds of preventive care, some things that are of questionable value, that second MRI, antibiotics when they're not needed, Maybe they should come with high cost sharing so that patients are less likely to use them. And higher income people are exposed to a little bit more cost sharing Mm -hmm. and lower income people don't face barriers Mm -hmm. to accessing high value care that higher cost sharing might bring. I think that's a necessary component of a sustainable health care system. You know, I wanted to pull the thread a little on that sort of cost sharing around preventative strategies. And you have a lot of corporations who've been grappling with their high cost of health care and really trying to have them focus in on wellness and uh, that sort of balance that you're talking about, getting the carrot and the stick right, is is interesting. Where where do you see it being effective uh, in terms of public policy where some incentive might be uh, good for these larger problems that we face? We spend billions of dollars on promoting employer wellness programs, and I think there's a good reason to believe that these might be an important tool. 
working adults spend, you know, eight or more hours a day in their workplace. And a lot of the behaviors that we're trying to help modify, whether it's smoking or exercise or healthy eating or even medication adherence, the place where you're spending a lot of your time is going to have an important influence on your ability to follow through on the best of intentions. So there's a good reason to think that having employers as partners in promoting better health behaviors could be really valuable. I think there's scant evidence to date on how well they work. It's not that we know they don't work. We just don't know because it's very hard, again, without randomized controlled trial evidence, to have a sense of whether it's just people who were already going to invest in better health behaviors. So having much better evidence, I think, would support both private investment and public investment in these kinds of activities. I'm leading another effort to try to develop randomized controlled trial evidence on how well these programs work. And if we find evidence that we do, (laughs) that's a great public policy tool to use. And it could be used in terms of subsidizing employers to do this, in terms of having insurance premiums that are affected by choices to participate in these programs, and hopefully we'll soon have evidence about how well those might work. We've been speaking today with Catherine Baker, the C. Boyden Gray Professor of Health Economics and Chair of the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can learn more about Dr. Baker and her team's work by going to at Harvard Chan SPH. Dr. Baker, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you so much. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski says she opposes federal approval of genetically engineered salmon, quote, for the health of both consumers and fisheries. But there is no scientific evidence that suggests GE salmon will pose a significant risk to either. Scientists engineered GE salmon to grow faster than non-GE farm-raised salmon by inserting genes from two other fish into the genome of an Atlantic salmon. After these changes, the GE salmon remained nutritionally and physiologically comparable to non-GE salmon, according to the Food and Drug Administration's scientific assessments. The FDA approved GE salmon marketed by Aqua Bounty Technologies in November 2015. The FDA says it can't establish with complete certainty the absolute harmlessness of any substance, so it defines safe to eat as, quote, a reasonable certainty in the minds of competent scientists. To start, the FDA says that the growth hormone the genetically engineered fish gains from genes from the Chinook salmon doesn't pose a risk to humans because it doesn't bind to mammalian growth hormone receptors. There are elevated levels of another hormone in GE salmon compared with non-GE farm-raised salmon, though the difference wasn't statistically significant. The FDA also found the nutritional profiles of GE and non-GE salmon were similar. One difference was slightly elevated levels of vitamin B6. In extreme amounts, vitamin B6 can be toxic. In an address to the Senate, Murkowski implied that GE salmon can't provide the omega-3 fatty acids that are in wild species of salmon. 
but the FDA found that the GE salmon's omega-3, omega-6 ratios were virtually identical to those of non-GE salmon. The GE salmon won't reach supermarkets for at least a few years, and the FDA has to publish labeling guidelines before the salmon can be sold. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Depression is extremely common among adolescents in this country, but it's often hard to differentiate between typically teen angst and a clinical condition that requires more immediate intervention. Suicide is the third leading cause of death among 10 to 24-year-olds, a population that almost ubiquitously uses texting as a form of communication. So um, if you're someone who's in pain, you text us. And then the counselor on the other side, they're on a screen that almost looks kind of like Facebook or Gmail. Nancy Lublin is founder and CEO of Crisis Text Line, an instant texting service designed to encourage teens in crisis to reach out for help. All they have to do is text the numbers 741-741. When messages come in with certain keywords in them, they automatically get tagged as high risk. So we don't take them chronologically. If you're at risk for suicide, you're automatically bumped up in the queue and you're like a code red. Since she founded Crisis Texts, the word has spread like wildfire. They receive an average of 15,000 texts per day from kids experiencing everything from typical teen dilemmas, such as a fight with a boyfriend, to kids contemplating suicide. Those in most danger are encouraged to take action through a series of channels. Crisis Text Line, an instant, age-appropriate intervention, available free of charge and 24-7 to give kids in crisis a lifeline and lead them to help they need. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.